This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 410th episode, we have a bunch of news, including a new Tyrannosauroid from North America. And a new Therizinosaur. Nice. I love Therizinosaurs. We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Patagosaurus, and a fun fact, as usual. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons, there are a couple new patrons I probably should be thanking, but I didn't give them enough time to correct my shout out guess. So we're going to be thanking 10 previously named patrons. <laughs> so this week we want to thank Kentrosaurus, Brosis Girl, The Gray Allosaurus, Wyatt, Ermel, Robert, Alone Dingo, Arlosaurus, Jackson Crawford, and Brett Douglas. Awesome. Thank you so much for being supporters of this show. And thank you to all of our patrons. So jumping into the news, I'm going to kick it off with our new Tyrannosaur, because as we all know, Tyrannosaurs always go first. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I should say Tyrannosauroid, because I feel like Tyrannosaur is more of a shorthand for Tyrannosaurid, mm -hmm. things like Tyrannosaurus, Rex, and those other really big mostly North American creatures. But this one's a Tyrannosauroid? Yes, still North American, but much smaller than Tyrannosaurus rex, for example. This new Tyrannosauroid was published in the Journal of Paleontology, which is open access. Nice. And written by L.J. Krumenacher and others. And it's all about a new Tyrannosauroid femur that was discovered in eastern Idaho in the U.S., specifically in eastern Bonneville County, Idaho, if you're familiar with Idaho counties. Maybe that tells you where it is. The new discovery is a Tyrannosauroid, like I was saying, not Tyrannosaurus rex. Probably obvious if you knew the formation because it's from the mid-Cretaceous, so it's way before T-Rex had evolved. It's actually probably more exciting than a T-Rex find because we have tons of T-Rex specimens, you know, like 30 to 50, depending on which sources you're using. But we have almost none from the mid-Cretaceous. Hmm. So even just a single femur from the mid-Cretaceous is pretty exciting. This one was found in the Wyan Formation, and that makes it Albion to Cenomanian in age. Officially, that's the boundary between the early and late Cretaceous, but most people call that period the mid-Cretaceous I'm seeing these days. Hmm. People are starting to talk about the middle Cretaceous. I wonder if in a few years there will be a new mid-Cretaceous <laughs> time period because for some reason, the Jurassic and the Triassic have a middle, but the Cretaceous just has the early and late. I don't know. I just didn't realize thing. that. 
Yeah, it's weird. We don't have many tyrannosaurids from that time. In fact, until a few years ago, we basically had zero, hmm. especially in North America. In 2019, Zano and others described Moros intrepidus. I remember that one. It was a pretty significant one. The title of that paper was, quote, Diminutive Fleet-Footed Tyrannosauroid Narrows the 70 Million Year Gap in the North American Fossil Record, end quote, which sounds super important, you know, 70 million year gap. Also, it's interesting that it's diminutive mm-hmm. <laughs> tyrannosauroid. So yeah, Morose was a really cool discovery. It's presumed to be one of the earliest tyrannosauroids in North America after arriving from Asia. That's why the species name Intrepidus is there, because it was like an intrepid young thing coming out into North America. An explorer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Based on the partial leg and foot of Morose, which is pretty much the only thing they found aside from some teeth, they estimated Morose was about 78 kilograms or about 172 pounds. Which when you think of a tyrannosauroid, you usually think larger. Yeah, definitely. So this one was quite small. It was still not done growing, but likely probably near its adult size because they think it was about seven years old. And even though Tyrannosaurus went through this huge, crazy growth spurt in its like early teenaged years. The other early tyrannosaurs we don't think did that so much. At the time, Morose was about 15 million years older than any other known North American tyrannosauroid. So it's kind of surprising because before that we were thinking, okay, tyrannosaurs evolved in Asia and then they must have come over much later, right? Mm-hmm. And then we got T-Rex and Gorgosaurus and Displetosaurus, some of these later Cretaceous tyrannosaurs but then we found morose and i was like what (laughs) what is this guy doing here so that was pretty cool and we talked more about morose in episodes 223 and 394 but maybe the most important detail is that it was found a couple hundred miles south of the new tyrannosauroid because it was down in utah there was also another tyrannosaur named in 2019 suski tyrannus which was even farther away both in time and distance it was found in new mexico and it was about 10 million years younger than the new Tyrannosaur. Suski Tyrannus was about half the weight of Morose, thus its name that means coyote tyrant. <laughs> <laughs> so it's about all it would terrorize, or maybe around the size of a coyote. It weighed about 20 to 40 kilograms, or 44 to 88 pounds, although it may have still been growing as well because it was estimated to be around four years old when it fossilized. So, yeah. Not all the way done growing. Hard to say with these early tyrannosaurids. We don't know how close they were to the crazy growth curve of later tyrannosaurids. But in all of these examples, there are some signs that the bones are starting to get near their adult size. So they're like subadults, but not super far away from adult status. So it's safe to estimate their size. Yeah, or at least say that even though it was 20 to 40 kilograms, it probably didn't burst up to a thousand kilograms, but maybe it got to a hundred if it was an especially late bloomer, but we just don't know. Other than Suski Tyrannus and Morose, that time period basically only has Tyrannosauroid teeth, of course, until this new find. But both the new Tyrannosauroid and Morose are from the Cedar Mountain Formation, and being from the same formation, means they're from around the same time. They're also around the same size. They're both tyrannosauroids. So one might think, how do we know this new tyrannosauroid isn't just another morose individual? And I should mention, 
this new tyrannosauroid bone they refer to as the YN femur because- Where it's found. Yeah, the YN formation. Kind of like the white rock spinosaurid from last week's episode. Exactly. Yeah, it's not significant enough to get a new genus name, but you got to call it something. (laughs) So yeah, the formation name is a good way to do it. The Cedar Mountain Formation is especially enormous in terms of time span. It spans actually over 50 million years, and it covers most of the early Cretaceous and part of the late Cretaceous. 50 million years is just a crazy long time. That almost, if you went from now 50 million years ago, you'd almost get back to non-avian dinosaurs. (laughs) And it, it just spans like, well, most of the Cretaceous. But Morose is in the mustn't touch it member, <laughs> one of my favorite <laughs> formations. The new Tyrannosauroid is from the Wyan formation, like I said, which could make it up to a few million years older, even earlier than Morose. So further filling in those gaps. Yes. And they could have made the paper on this one. New Tyrannosauroid, diminutive Tyrannosauroid fills in a 55 million year gap. <laughs> Closing that gap. Yeah. Yeah. We're at that late end of the gap, just edging earlier, I guess. The femur that they found has the most similarities with Morose, but it also has some similarities with Suski Tyrannus, quite a few actually, and fewer with other Tyrannosauroids in Asia like Guanlong and Dilong, maybe Dilong. The most important detail in terms of it not being just another Morose is that it's missing a quote, semicircular tuberosity near the lesser trochanter, end quote. What does that mean? (laughs) It's basically, there is a bump that is not on this new femur, which is on morose. Mm. And that's one of the features that they use to define morose. So the fact that it's missing is like, okay, well. Something different. Yeah, it's, it's a new dinosaur. Unfortunately, the new find is even less complete than the morose find, which was already not a very great find. It's basically just the top half of a femur. Whereas morose, at least we had a few leg bones and some foot bones <laughs> and a couple teeth. They do have enough, though, to consider it, quote unquote, small bodied. They did histology and found five lags. Again, those like tree growth ring analogies in dinosaur bones. Mm-hmm. So it was at least five years old. It's slightly younger than morose since morose was seven. And it was likely still growing at a, quote unquote, moderate rate unclear how much longer it would have grown at this moderate rate though it's estimated that it was around 51 kilograms or 110 pounds and that's again from a five-year-old individual which is obviously more than 30 kilograms which was how much the four-year-old suski tyrannus weighed but less than the about 78 kilograms of the seven-year-old morose so it's in between in both age and weight (laughs) of the two other sort of beginning of the late Cretaceous Tyrannosauroids that we know of. I would say, though, all of them were probably lucky if they made it to 100 kilograms as an adult, although we can't really say until we find some adults. Need more fossils. Yeah. They were definitely much smaller than T-Rex or even Displetosaurus or Gorgosaurus or anything like that. Given the similarities with Guanlong and Suski Tyrannus, this new Tyrannosaurid probably looked pretty similar So my best guess as a comparison to T-Rex is that the new Tyrannosaurid was much skinnier and also had much skinnier and longer jaws Mm. to sort of match its body. It would have had a much shorter skull, meaning top to bottom shorter, as well as narrower from left to right side. It would have had smaller but still serrated teeth, 
It likely had three-fingered arms that are a little bit more proportional to its body than T-Rex, although still probably fairly small. And it would have had fairly long legs and a tail. Possibly it could have been covered in feathers. A lot of times Morosa and Suzuki Tyrannus are recreated as covered in feathers. Because mm-hmm. why not? Yeah, I mean, a small, and we know that that group of dinosaurs could have had feathers. But of course, this is all just conjecture from one partial femur. I just felt like I needed to paint a picture of what it looked like. Mm. Because who doesn't want to know what an early Tyrannosauroid in North America would have looked like? I hear that and I just think, small. Yes. (laughs) It is small. (laughs) Well, small for a Tyrannosauroid, I should say. Because compared to a human, it would still be large. Yeah. I mean, so it's about 100 pounds, 110 pounds. It's pretty big and fairly ferocious because it's more like a dog or something where it's all... With sharp teeth. You don't have to be that big to be large compared to a human and a threat. Yeah, definitely. Plus, they were so much bigger per pound than mammals are that even though it only weighed that much, it was probably bigger than a person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The YN femur probably represents the oldest tyrannosauroid bone in North America because it was about one to five million years older than morose. And it also shows that there was some decent diversity because now we have at least three genera about 30 million years before T-Rex evolved. There was a lot of experimenting happening to get to T-Rex. Yeah. The area the YN femur was found in has been the site of decent dinosaur remains before. For dinosaurs, we've got ankylosaurs, iguanodontians, and Erictodromius finds. Actually, Erictodromius is like the main thing you find there. That's the burrowing one. Pretty cool. Yeah. There are also some decent non-dinosaur finds there, including mammals, crocodiliforms, turtles, and fish. I feel like you doing your dinosaur of the day. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like those Painting are always... that picture. Yeah. It's, it seems like it's always mammals, crocodiliforms, turtles, and fish. Sometimes there's reptiles. Pterosaurs. Yeah. Pterosaurs. <laughs> Unfortunately, most of the fossils there are broken and or worn, probably because they were disposited after taking a bit of a beating in a river. So they're also disarticulated for the most part. So not the greatest place to find dinosaur fossils, but the fact that we found quite a few there before, maybe they'll be able to find more of this Tyrannosauroid and we'll get a name out of it. That would be nice. That would be. Just need more fossils. All right, getting into the new Therizinosaur. The name is Paralotherizinosaurus japonicus. Oh man, that is a long (laughs) genus name. Genus and species name. But yeah. So this was described by Yoshitsugu Kobayashi and others, and it was published in Scientific Reports. And the authors re-examined a specimen that previously we'd only known it as a Manoraptoran theropod, but it was thought to be a Therizinosaur. The fossils were first described in 2008. It's a partial hand. It's known as the Nakagawa specimen because the fossils were found in Nakagawa town on Hokkaido Island in Japan. So another one of those, you kind of refer to it by where it was found. Mm-hmm. Until you got a real name for it. Yep, but now it's got that real name, Paralotherizinosaurus. <laughs> Bit of a tongue twister. Therizinosaurus is already a long thing, so they added three syllables to the front of it. <laughs> yes, well, the genus name means by or near the sea reaper reptile, because 
Paralos means buyer near the sea in Greek, then Therizo means reap in Greek, and Saurus means reptile in Latin. So combining that. And then the species name, Japonicus, you could probably guess, refers to Japan. So it's basically a Therizinosaur that they found near the sea? Yes. Hokkaido Island. Now, in 2008, it was too hard to compare these fossils to know for sure that it was a Therizinosaur. But now we know about more Therizinosaurs, so it got easier. The authors studied the partial vertebra and partial right hand. The paleo art, it's really pretty. It shows it as it's covered in dino fuzz. There's some fun purple and blue colors with some white and orange. It's got a long neck and large claws. It's shown walking on two legs, the bulky body, like we see in Therizinosaurs. And based on the skeletal illustration, I would very, very roughly say that it's about eight feet or two and a half meters tall and 10 feet or three meters long. It's decently sized. Yeah. Although maybe on the small side for a Therizinosaur, they were pretty big. Yeah. Uh, This one lived in the upper Cretaceous around 83 to 72 million years ago. It's the youngest Therizinosaur from Japan and only the third Therizinosaur ever found in Japan. But the first two Therizinosaurs that were found, they haven't yet been described. They're from the lower and upper Cretaceous, but they're too fragmentary to name. One is a single tooth, and the other one is a partial brain case, teeth, and upper arm, also known as a humerus. Cool. It'd be interesting to see one from the early Cretaceous. Yeah. I don't think we have too many Therizinosaurs from back then. Just more Therizinosaurs in general. Yeah. Paralotherizinosaurus is the first therizinosaur found in marine deposits in Asia, and the second therizinosaur found in marine deposits anywhere. The first one was Nothronychus from the Tropic Shale. So this shows that some therizinosaurs adapted to coastal environments, and it also helps to show that therizinosaurs in Asia lived over a longer period of time, and according to the paper, quote, at the eastern edge of the Asian continent, end quote, than we knew before. Now, Paralotherizinosaurus is a derived therizinosaur, and the authors compared the claws to other therizinosaurs, and they found that basal therizinosaurs had claws for general use, but derived therizinosaurs had claws that were meant to hook and pull vegetation to their mouths. Interesting. Yeah, that is the big mystery of why the largest claws ever on an animal anywhere on Earth Mm -hmm. were on an herbivore. (laughs) I suspect that they had more than just that one use, too. Yeah, although I'm I'm not surprised when you think about claws has to do with food in some way. Yeah, but you could see having massive claws might be good for self-defense or yeah. maybe competing for mate or even just showing off to the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> or the males, we don't know. Yeah, it's usually the males that have to show off, though, at mm. least when we're talking about dinosaurs and birds. True. So rounding out this Paralotherizinosaurus. I'll make it sound like another dinosaur of the day. <laughs> Other animals that lived around the same time and place included sharks. Oh, that one's a different one than what you mentioned. Plesiosaurs, mosasaurs, turtles, pterosaurs, birds, and then we've got dinosaurs like hadrosaurids, tyrannosauroids, and nodosaurids. Nice. Yeah, since it's marine, you get all those cool things like plesiosaurs and mosasaurs mm-hmm. and sharks. I noticed you didn't say turtles. For cool marine animals. (laughs) Turtles aren't always marine. (laughs) Turtles in lots of situations. 
I just checked because I was curious if maybe Paralotherizinosaurus was the new longest dinosaur name because that is extremely long. Mm -hmm. But Micropachycephalosaurus is still two letters longer because Micropachycephalosaurus is 23 letters, whereas Paralotherizinosaurus is 21. Paralotherizinosaurus. Yeah, yeah, that one. Mike, what was the longest one again? Micropachycephalosaurus. Micropachycephalosaurus. For some reason, that's easier for me to say. Well, micro is sort of its own thing, and pachycephalosaurus we're used to saying. Yeah. Whereas parallel into therizinosaurus doesn't mm. break up as easily. Not yet, anyway. Yeah. Parallel therizinosaurus. <laughs> it's getting easier. Yeah. <laughs> if it becomes really important, we have to say it all the time, then we'll get used to it. 23 letters. That is a long word. Mm -hmm. That's a good one for Scrabble. Can you even fit a 23-letter word on a Scrabble thing? Might not even be that wide. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't played Scrabble in a long time. It would be difficult, though. You have to get the right letters. Yeah. And I feel like the board might only be like 20 by 20 or something. Hmm. All right. We've got other dinosaur news. So next up, there was a new specimen of Yulong Mini that was found. And that helps to show how Yulong grew as it aged. That was published in Cretaceous Research by Shui Fang Wei and others. So Yulong Mini was the first oviraptorid hatchling found from the Upper Cretaceous Chiopa Formation, and that is of Luachuan in central China. In this paper, the authors described a what they refer to as a non-hatchling Yulong Mini specimen. And it's definitely a non-hatchling because they did histology. It's a sub-adult. It's about five or six years old. Yeah. And you should be able to tell based on its size. Yeah. <laughs> the hatchlings are tiny. <laughs> if it's five or six years old, it's going to be way bigger. Yep. Now, this specimen includes vertebrae, which includes 29 caudal or tail vertebrae mm. and parts of the shoulder and forelimbs. So, yes, that helps show how Yulong grew. It's ontogeny. Because multiple hatchlings have been found, and then now you've got this subadult to help compare. They found that as it grew older, it got a more expanded deltopectoral crest that's in the shoulder. And you see this in hadrosauroids and birds. And growing this larger deltopectoral crest could be related to larger pectoral muscle sizes, which allows, as the authors put it, quote, greater muscle forces for humeral retraction, end quote. Yep. We've talked about that one before. That's the pectoral muscle attachment, or like a chest muscle. So that helps you move the arm back and forth, basically. Mm -hmm. Like if you're flapping a wing, for example, which is interesting because oviraptorids, obviously, we don't think flew much. Yeah, but, but they might have needed the muscle for something else. Yeah, or maybe they did have some sort of wingishness going on where it was useful. Yep. And then I've got to sneak a sauropod paper in here. <laughs> Of course you do. <laughs> and now I got to sneak in a sauropod paper. I'm not surprised. <laughs> this one was in Science Advances by Andreas Janelle and others. And it's about the soft tissue pads on sauropod feet. Oh, yeah, those are cool. Yeah. So what they found was that sauropods may have developed these soft tissue pads on their feet by the late Triassic to early Jurassic, and that might have been a key adaptation for sauropods evolving into these giant animals. So way back when they were just sauropodomorphs, 
maybe even. I was just thinking you had that huge sauropodomorph Ladumahati that was already really big, so it probably had some decent padding on its feet. Gotta protect those bones from all that weight. Yes. So the authors pose this question, how could sauropods hold up their immense bodies on land? And they're not the first ones to do that because, I mean, some of the first hypotheses on sauropods were that they were way too big, so they had to have lived in the water. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we figured out that wasn't true, but, you know, how could they possibly stand or walk or do anything being so ginormous? Large mammals like elephants and rhinos, they got large by having robust limb bones and shifting to a more upright posture, among other things. The author said that there'd been minimal research on sauropod feet, the manis and pez, and that could be due to a lack of fossils. It seems likely that the feet were important when it came to how well big sauropods moved, which makes a lot of sense. So there's a lot of hypotheses around sauropods, and one of them is like a shift in autopodial posture in the hands and the feet. There's also hypotheses about developing a large soft tissue pad, but no soft tissue pads in sauropods are preserved in the fossil record. So that's why it's a hypothesis. Yeah, we don't have like a good mummified sauropod foot. It's not impossible, but yeah, we would be unlikely. But you never know. There's some inferences based on some rounded heel impressions in sauropod tracks that about the tissue pads too. Yeah, we've definitely heard a lot about that, not just in sauropods, but all sorts of dinosaurs. They talk about how you can infer how big those squishy parts are on the bottom of their feet based mm-hmm. on the tracks they're leaving in different mud and dirt and things. Yes. So in this paper, the authors hypothesized that sauropods had the soft tissue pad in their feet and that helped with their weight and to reduce bone stress. And they did photogrammetry of nearly complete feet of five sauropodomorphs from different clades that were all different sizes. And they did finite element analyses, also known as FEA. They looked at the data to see how sauropods could have moved and then tested how that would work if they had soft tissue pads in their feet versus if they didn't have those soft tissue pads. And they found that there would have been way too much stress on their bones unless they did have the soft tissue pads. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, elephants need them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And some of these things weighed almost 10 times as much as an elephant. Yes. Although, do you want to point out elephant feet and sauropod feet looked very different? That's true. Yeah. Because elephants basically walk on their tiptoes. Mm-hmm. So I suppose they definitely need extra help in distributing that stress. Whereas a sauropod have all their toes out. Yes. Well, so what the authors suggested was that sauropods had a soft tissue pad beneath the heel of the back feet hmm. and that their front feet and their back feet were different, which is different from like you just said with elephants, they tiptoed and they tiptoed on all four of their feet mm-hmm. or they do still too, because elephants are still around. <laughs> yeah. And they're easy to study. Yeah. <laughs> you can just... <laughs> you can just see them tiptoeing. <laughs> yeah. It's so easy to get an elephant foot with all the meat on it and everything. You can put it in an x-ray while it's alive, watch it walk, all sorts of things we can't do with sauropods. Yep. But anyway, they were saying sauropods needed the pads or else they would have gotten stress fractures. And they said based on pads in elephants, but also rhinos and camels, these pads may have absorbed mechanical shock and stored and released elastic energy. Ooh, that's fancy, storing and releasing energy. Mm-hmm. 
They think sauropods also may have had more soft tissues, like muscles, tendons, ligaments, sole skin, and things like the potential for absorbing loads at heel strike. That's when your heel hits the ground first. Or for distributing forces evenly between the limbs. That's cool. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of the fancy running shoes when they <laughs> they have these big squishy heels. Mm-hmm. And when you hit, some of them now are kind of springy. And there's actually like rules on how springy they can be. Like you can't have an actual spring in your running shoe if you're mm. running in a competition, for example. Because it makes you, it gives you too much of an advantage. Yeah, because it would just absorb the energy when you hit the heel down and then like release it as you get back up. But they have different types of foam that give you a different amount of springiness. <laughs> so you could imagine having a organic living analog of that with a bunch of elastin in it or something where it squishes down and then it sort of springs back. Maybe like a kangaroo a little bit or something. (laughs) That'd be really cool. It would be. Well, for this study, the author said that this is the first strong evidence to support the idea of soft tissue pads. And my other thought here, thinking about how they had heels on the, well, the pads were only on the heels on the back feet, just reminded me of like wedge heels. And then that reminded me of... (laughs) That video that came out, I don't remember when, where somebody put heels on all the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. Oh, yeah, like high-heeled shoes, Mm -hmm. like human shoes. Yeah, Yeah. although (laughs) it would make more sense if they were all wedges, I guess. Yeah. At least for the sauropods. That's true. That's a lot of pressure on a high heel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Actually, thinking about the storing energy is weird because usually things that store energy are doing it in that periodic sort of bouncing like a kangaroo. You know, you impact, then you release the energy, then you impact, then you release the energy. It's hard to do when you're quadrupedal. Yeah. Because you take a big step, then the other feet take a step, and then that foot takes a step. Like how much energy? Probably wouldn't be able to store very much energy, but maybe a little bit. Yeah, because we were saying in a previous paper, it came out that they, yeah, that each foot took its own step. Yeah. And that some of them did like the right side and then the left side. Yeah. And maybe it wasn't like an elephant where they'd go diagonally. Yeah. But one way or another, they weren't doing like bounding. They weren't like galloping. No. Oh, that would be so funny. <laughs> maybe the little tiny ones. Or I was Before thinking, they got too big. Yeah. And I was thinking you might say too, because the back feet look like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe those little ones that we think might have been bipedal, you know, like just running on their back feet. Oh, yeah. When they're little. Could be useful then, I suppose. Last, we got two museum updates. So the Peabody Museum of Natural History may have fossils of a new tyrannosaur species from the east coast of the U.S. Oh, cool. Yeah, there's a Yale undergraduate there, Chase Brownstein, who has been studying the museum's collections. And, you know, like so many museums, there's in the collections, so many fossils that have been collected over the years, and for whatever reason, uh, they just haven't been able to be studied, so mm-hmm. you can find some really cool stuff. It takes a long time to get through all those jackets. Mm-hmm. And one of the fossils at the Peabody Museum is a claw collected in Delaware back in the 1860s, and it's similar in size to a Deinonychus foot claw. So I hope it gets published about eventually. It sounds like there might be some other fragments of bones, too, so maybe there's enough to describe it. So that's in addition to a Tyrannosaur species. There's also a Deinonychus foot claw. No, this is all a Tyrannosaur set of bones. It's just similar in size. Oh, I see. Gotcha. So it'd be a, a smaller Tyrannosaur, maybe, unless it's a hand claw, I suppose. I think it's a hand claw. Gotcha. 
Sometimes those get mixed up though, <laughs> like Megaraptor, <laughs> where they thought it was a foot claw and it turned out to be a hand claw. They can look surprisingly similar at times. Well, either way, in this case, if they do name a new species, even if they don't, we know, we already do know that tyrannosaurs from the east coast of the U.S. look very different from tyrannosaurs found in other parts of the U.S. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would definitely be nice to find out more about them. Maybe it's in one of those other jackets in Yale. Yeah, maybe. Then the Philip J. Curry Museum, they took visitors on a rafting tour to look for fossils this summer, which sounds really fun. They had a, a new summer program. It goes from June to August. I guess it's like four and a half hours. And yeah, you go rafting and look for fossils. We recently asked people about places to go to dig for fossils, and we got a lot of great responses. I heard about the Philip J. Curry one after we got all these responses. But anyway, we put together a list on our website of nine programs you can go to. Some are for families, some are for adults, and some are for students. So you can go to our website and check it out if you're looking for places to dig. And now we're going to pause for a quick sponsor break. But when we get back, we'll get on to our dinosaur of the day, Patagosaurus. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Patagosaurus, which was a request from PaleoMike716. So thanks. It was a eusauropod dinosaur. I guess I did get another sauropod in. <laughs> that lived in the early Middle Jurassic in what is now Patagonia, Argentina. 
And it looked like other sauropods. It had the long neck, the small head, the long tail. It walked on four legs. It's estimated to be about 54 feet or 16 and a half meters long and weigh about 7.8 tons. And there are other estimates that it was about 46 feet or 14 meters long. A sort of average middle of the road, I would say. <laughs> middle of the road, for a yeah. yeah. The fossils were found in the 1970s, and the holotype includes a nearly complete skeleton, but no skull. But multiple specimens have been found, so we do know about most of the skeleton, including the skull. Although the skull isn't that well known. It's mostly the jaws that are known. A lot of specimens have been found, originally 12, but now it might only be 11 because there was a redescription of Patagosaurus and they found that one of those specimens might be a different taxa or a different kind of dinosaur. At least one juvenile has been found. It was herbivorous and it had a mix of basal and derived sauropod traits, so old and new traits. Now one derived trait is the air-filled cavities in bones, that's known as pneumatization, which made the bones lighter. It also had gracile or slender forelimbs compared to later sauropods like Camarasaurus. It had tall neural spines, five sacral vertebrae, that's in between the hips. It had saddle-shaped neural spines on the front tail vertebrae, also known as the anterior caudal vertebrae. It had a relatively short high lower jaw, the dentary, a short high broad snout, and teeth similar to Camarasaurus in that they were more spoon-shaped. Yeah, description in general sounds a lot like Camarasaurus, mm -hmm. I would say. It was interesting that you said later sauropods like Camarasaurus, because I'm not used to Camarasaurus because that was in the Jurassic. Yeah. But this is the earlier Jurassic. Yep. Just a reminder of how long dinosaurs were around. Mm-hmm. Patagosaurus had a lot of replacement teeth. It probably replaced its teeth every 58 days. Nice. Jealous. <laughs> I know. And juveniles looked a little different from adults. For example, an adult femora, the leg bone, had different proportions from juveniles. It's also possible that juveniles had fewer teeth than adults. The long neck of Patagosaurus may have helped it avoid some overheating. It was originally described by Jose Bonaparte in 1979, and the type species is Patagosaurus fariasi. The genus name means Patagonia lizard. It refers to it being a reptile found in Patagonia. <laughs> and the species name is in honor of Ricardo Farias, who owned the farmland where the fossils were found. Patagosaurus lived in a warm, humid climate with lots of conifers and ferns. Other dinosaurs that lived around the same time and place include Pietnitskisaurus, which is a megalosauroid, Condoraptor, another megalosauroid, and Volchimeria, a eusauropod. And other animals, in addition to dinosaurs, that lived around the same time and place included amphibians, turtles, and mammals. And our fun fact of the day is that according to a study by Wilkinson et al. from 2009, 73% of the rock exposed on Earth is sedimentary rock. Oh, for which is what we find fossils in. Yes, but unfortunately, it doesn't all preserve fossils, obviously, because yeah. not all sediment is good enough. But the remaining 27% breaks down into 12% metamorphic, 8% volcanic, and 7% plutonic. That's that new word you told me you learned. Yeah, so both plutonic and volcanic form from magma, but plutonic is formed underground rather than after erupting out of a volcano. So if you combine those two, that means that igneous rock makes up slightly more of the rock 
exposed on Earth than metamorphic rocks. So it's 15% for igneous versus 12% for metamorphic, but obviously the 73% for sedimentary is way more. In order for sedimentary rock to contain dinosaur fossils, dinosaurs need to get buried very quickly and there needs to be the right minerals around and probably water to transport the minerals into the bones. We went into way more detail in this process in episode 398, specifically in the fun fact. The article that calculated those rock percentages has a great title. It's a quote, global geologic maps are tectonic speedometers rates of rock cycling from area age frequencies, end quote, which is kind of fun. So the gist (laughs) is that every million years, the continents are covered in about 1.5 million square kilometers of volcanic rock and about 12.1 million square kilometers of sedimentary rock. Well, really sediments, some of which eventually turns into sedimentary rock. Hmm. So for some fun comparisons, that means every million years, there's enough volcanic eruption to cover all of Mongolia. Oh, that's large. (laughs) It is a lot. And there's enough sediment to cover all of Canada and Greenland. Also a lot. Yeah. If those were the only two processes happening, given Earth's total land area, it would only take about 11 million years to cover all of Earth's land in sediment and volcanic rock. Wow. It's a lot of material coming out of the Earth. Of course, it doesn't spread evenly like that, though, because, you know, Mm -hmm. some of it's in rivers that happen over and over again or lakes or whatever, and volcanoes aren't everywhere. But weather and water also erode rocks on the surface, so it's not just adding to the top. And tectonic forces both shove some rocks down into the mantle to be melted, and then it also lifts other rock layers up to the surface. So tectonic forces sort of mix everything up. Some of it gets rid of rock, some of it makes new rock. They found that rock uplifted and subducted happens at about the same rate on average, which makes sense because we don't have continents growing or shrinking much, even on geologic timescales. Like if you go back to the dinosaurs, basically the same continents around, which is why we can find dinosaur bones all over the place. If they were recycling the crust (laughs) through the continents, all those bones would be gone. Mm -hmm. And then they actually found a rate for it. So they found that equivalent, you know, down and up rate is about half a kilometer per million years on Hmm. average, or in human units, that's half a millimeter a year. (laughs) So pretty slow. It sounds half a kilometer per million years sounds pretty fast in geologic time when you're Mm -hmm. thinking about like, oh, you know, dinosaurs were 66 million years ago. That's 33 kilometers of movement. But in human units of half a millimeter a year, it's like you'd never notice that. Yep. Even in, you know, a hundred years, that's like two inches. (laughs) It's not much. But there is a lot of randomness in the data. So there are some areas that take a really long time to go up or down and others that are moving faster. So some areas with dinosaur fossils are still buried under miles of rock. There are others that popped up and eroded away before nine-avian dinosaurs even went extinct. But you can look at these geologic maps and kind of see just how fast things are moving, which is Mm, pretty cool. That is cool. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thank you for listening. If you're not already a patron, please consider joining our community of dinosaur enthusiasts at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. We offer lots of perks. Thanks again for listening, and until next time.
Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.